This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. We are joined today by James Foreman, who has brought his considerable experience as a public defender, a law clerk for the Supreme Court, a Yale Law School professor, an author, and a charter school founder to the complicated, tricky minefield topic of race and incarceration in his new book, Locking Up Our Own, Crime and Punishment in Black America. The raves, respect, and conversation he has brought to this subject is best exemplified by this review from the Wall Street Journal. An honest and balanced book, Locking Up Our Own, doesn't play down the history of racism in our criminal justice system, but it does explain why racial bias doesn't tell the whole story. If we are going to have a national conversation about race in the United States, A book like Locking Up Our Own ought to set the tone. If it did, these debates would not only be more honest, but also more civil. And I couldn't couldn't agree more with the work that you've done. So, James, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, James, this is the rate of incarceration for blacks and particularly black males is not a new problem. What prompted you to attack this now? Well, I've been thinking about this since I worked as a public defender in Washington, D.C. And you're right, it's not a new problem. In fact, the reality of these racial disparities, the reality of the United States locking up more people than any other nation on earth, that had brought me to be a public defender. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I got to the public defender's office in Washington, D.C., I saw that there was a way in which the story was yet more complicated than even I had understood Mm. because D.C. is a majority African-American city. There's African-American mayor. There's black police chief. There's black judges. Forty percent of the judges are African-American. And even in that city with all of that African-American representation, the chief prosecutor was Eric Holder when I was a public defender. And even there, with all of that African-American representation in the justice system, we still had those same racial disparities. And so I really started puzzling um, over how this could be. And so I felt like there was a part of the story that hadn't been told. You know, nobody had written about what's happened in this country in our criminal justice system through the lens of black elected officials and black mm. prosecutors and black judges and black police officers. You know, what were what were they thinking? What were we thinking over the last 50 years? Because black people weren't just sitting on the sidelines, right? We weren't only the victims of the system. We were that. But we also, in many cities, were people in operation of parts of those systems. So how to make sense of that? And that's the story that I wanted to try to tell. And so one of the store, one of the first strands that you address is there was a movement in the 70s to legalize marijuana. Now, this was coming on the heels of a horrible heroin ec- epidemic in the 60s. So there was surprising amount of support for decriminalizing it, yet the black community was not so in favor of that. Tell tell us a little bit about why they weren't and whether they did or didn't understand, well, I have to assume they didn't understand what the ramifications of that would be. Absolutely. And I was fascinated by this piece of the history because 
I had known it. All I knew was kind of what we know today, which is um, all of the ways in which the African-American community has been disadvantaged by marijuana criminalization, right? And people getting arrest records, getting incarcerated, even if they don't get incarcerated, getting records. And so then you can't get a job, you Mm. can't get student loans, you can't get public housing. And when I went back to the 1970s, what I found in Washington, D.C. and some other places, but I focused on D.C., was a movement to decriminalize marijuana, just as you said. And then what I found kind of most surprising was that the opposition to that was led by African-American ministers and in D.C., an African-American city council member who himself was a black nationalist, former civil rights worker. Um, And the fact that they opposed decriminalization and then their reasons for opposing it were the things that I found so surprising. Yeah, and share that with us because we didn't really have that perspective. Um, I was in D.C., in school in the 60s. Mm. And I don't think we quite had the perspective of how blacks in those communities felt about the violence in their own communities. And so talk to what because this also entered when gun control came up. Mm -hmm. So talk to us a little bit about how the non-criminal element of D.C., felt why it was so important to have tough laws about drug use and or gun possession. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about the marijuana and then the gun. That So as you mentioned, there was this incredible heroin epidemic in the 1960s. And what that meant was that uh, the homicide rate nationally doubled. In Washington, D.C., uh, it tripled. In New York, it more than doubled. And heroin really, he, people remember the crack years of the 80s, but in the 60s, it was heroin. They tested everyone entering the D.C. jail. Nin- in 1964, they concluded that 4% of the people were heroin addicts. By 1969, the 4% had become 45%. Wow. Right? That's just an epidemic tearing through a community. And that caused people, when it came time to consider marijuana decriminalization, that caused people to be very fearful. The idea of marijuana as a gateway drug was very powerful in the Mm. 1970s. You had people like Jackie Robinson, the baseball great who desegregated the major leagues, going around to black churches and black civic organizations in the late 60s, early 70s saying, don't support marijuana decriminalization because my son, Jackie Jr., was a heroin addict. And he started with marijuana. Mm. And when you have Jackie Robinson, right, this was... he had recently retired from baseball. Yeah. So he's a huge figure. And he's going around and telling people that his own child could fall prey to heroin and that he started with marijuana. That has a real impact uh, in the community. So you have figures like this. There's a fear that if our young people, right, black young people, if they use marijuana, we don't have the same resources to overcome addiction that maybe in the suburban communities, the wealthier, whiter communities Mm -hmm. have, right? We don't have access to the fancy drug treatment programs, right? If our kids get caught up on this thing, then they're just going to end up being incarcerated, right? This is what black parents know. So in this moment, early on, when the city had a chance to decriminalize marijuana, they said, no, 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 because they were so fearful that it would lead to worse and worse outcomes. Mm. And you mentioned, I think, an important point in your question, which is, did they know? And I think the answer is 
No, not really. That is to say, the decision in the 1970s about whether to decriminalize or not to decriminalize isn't being made with an awareness of what's going to happen in the 1980s and 1990s. They don't know in the 1970s that 10 years later, Congress will pass a law that will mean that if you have that marijuana conviction, you can't get student loans. You can't get into public housing. They don't know that's down the road, right? So that's why in a lot of ways, it's a tragic story um, because of of that, that feature of it. Yeah. You know, there's always, whenever you make any decision, right, that there are unintended consequences or, in this case, collateral damage. But collateral damage doesn't even seem weighty or important enough for the kind of collective damage that has done to black communities. Now now pile on gun control yeah. and, and tell, because that was the next sort of front. And I was fascinated Because I would have thought, well, this is a no-brainer. They're going to want guns controlled in their community. But I, I, the way in which you talk in the book about going back to the, you know, early 1900s and the ability for blacks to be able to protect themselves against what was fierce, fierce hostility and deprivation, really, by whites against blacks, just ne- it, that, that was like an epiphany for me. That like sort of was changing the kaleidoscope of how I thought about gun control in black communities. So tell us a little bit more about what you learned there. Absolutely. So there's something that, um, you know, scholars have referred to as the black tradition of arms, right? This black tradition of of owning guns, because if you think about it, if you can count on the government to protect you, if you can count on law enforcement to protect you, then you might not feel such a need to have mm. a firearm. But if you're African-American, post-slavery, Jim Crow South, places in the North as well, the police aren't responding to your community when you're asking them. Indeed, the police are in cahoots with the Klan, right, that's operating two different... Or they're in the Klan. Yeah, right. (laughs) Exactly. They're one and the same or they're working together. Exactly right. And so in that uh, scenario, you have... I mean, one of the things that I was amazed by, I mean, I knew Malcolm X and the Black Panther Party. You know, there's some well-known... But you, it's hard to find a civil rights leader in the 1960s who's from the South, right? Fannie Lou Hamer, um, who isn't saying, you know, I've got a gun and I'm going to and I'm going to use it if I need to to protect myself. And so that is a 60, 70, 80 year tradition of African-American gun ownership. Um, And so now we get to the 1970s and crime has risen in the 60s, as we talked about. And you have this first generation of black elected officials coming into office. Throughout cities in America, there's an 800 percent increase in the 1970s of African-American elected officials nationally because of the Voting Rights Act and the decline of Jim Crow. So now they're in office. They're in mayor's offices. They're in city councils. They're looking at this incredible crime problem. They're saying, well, what can we do? Well, what they can try to do in the cities where the law will allow it, and D.C. was one, New York, Chicago, Detroit, they can try to pass local gun control laws. But that runs up against this generation of people that says, wait a minute, gun ownership has always been, it's always been part of our heritage. We've needed it to protect ourselves when the state wouldn't act. Now, gun control 
does pass. It passes in D.C. and it's now widely popular in African-American. If you look at polls of African-American voters, there's broad support for gun control laws. Um, And the reason for that shift, I think, is we were just talking about when you said, well, the police are the Klan. Well, if the police are the Klan, then, yeah, you need to have your gun. But if it's in the 1970s and you're in a city like Washington, D.C., the police force is rapidly becoming majority African-American. The police chief will soon be black, right? The mayor's black. The city council's majority black. Now there's this sense among citizens that, well, maybe the government will respond, right? Maybe the government will respond to our concerns and claims about crime and The gun ownership, that was always second best, right? In an ideal world, you'd like to be able to rely on the government to protect you and not need to have this gun yourself. People know it's not the greatest form of protection. So for, for those reasons, there's enough of a change where this becomes popular. But then here's the final point. The gun control laws that they pass only operate at the local level. It isn't national gun control. They're going to Congress and they're asking Congress to pass national gun control because they know it doesn't matter if you pass a gun control law in D.C. The guns just come in from Virginia. They come in from Maryland, New York, the same thing, Chicago, the same thing, Baltimore, the same thing. They need Congress to act at a national level. And another one of the tragedies of the book is that they ask Congress for that help, for that assistance to complement what they're doing at the city level. And we know the story of yeah. gun control at the national level, right? <laughs> right. It, it, you know, the NRA takes over and it never happens. 50 years later. Right. So now what we have, in a, in a lot of ways, I argue, and some of my friends, you know, some of my liberal friends don't, don't like this particular conclusion. Um, but I, I feel in a lot of ways that we have the worst of both worlds because we have tough gun laws in cities, Right. So when I was a public defender, I represented lots of young black men who were caught with possession of guns. We have tough gun laws. People are going to prison, but we still have just as many guns because we don't have national gun control. So we have the guns, we have the violence, and we have the incarceration rates. Yeah. So I I want to come back to – this feels like a little bit of a segue, but one of the things that was striking to me was about your dad. Mm. So this is from uh, the obituary of your dad, James Foreman Sr., who was described as a civil rights pioneer, brought a fierce revolutionary vision and masterly organization skills to virtually every civil rights battle in the 60s. He had been the executive secretary of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee that was known as SNCC and was incredibly significant. So how did your father's work inform you? And your dad died not that long ago. I think it was like 12 mm-hmm. years ago. So how did his work inform you? I mean, I almost feel like how did it not? Because yeah. <laughs> Because my, you know, my dad and also my mom, she wasn't she wasn't well known in the way that he was, but she was a member of SNCC as well. They met in SNCC. They met working and, together. Yeah, they worked together. Right. That's how they met. And uh, and so the two of them together, you know, raised me to believe that fighting for racial justice, that fighting for civil rights was the highest possible calling. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was just nothing you could do that was more valuable with your time or with your life. So I never felt like 
You know, when I became a public defender, you know, sometimes people would say, oh, you know, you turned down the money. and became... it, it never even felt like that. It was in my mind. That's what you do. This is what you did. So I almost feel like in a way I'm more impressed by people who like I almost say, well, it's like I went into the family business. You know what I mean? <laughs> I didn't I don't deserve credit for this. I was just raised to do this. <laughs> right. Um, and so so I I feel like that was very true of, of both of them. And I saw the sacrifices that my dad made. I mean, it was I mean, it was hard for them. They were an interracial couple yeah. in the 1960s. Right. And was it still illegal in some states? It was. It was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they and and they and, and it was also incredibly stressful. You know, we were you know, there's the COINTEL program, the FBI surveillance of black activists. I mean, my family was aggressively surveilled. We have yeah. my, my dad has hundreds of boxes of FBI files. Um, and so the kind of pressure that you're under, right, you're working all the time. You're not getting paid hardly any money. I'm talking about my parents now. I'm a kid, right? But they're working all the time. They're getting not getting paid. The FBI is surveilling you. They're, they're sowing division within the civil rights community, right? They're trying to turn, they're trying to create informants and turn people against one another. So by the late 60s, early 70s, there's a lot of distrust, you know, mm. people. And, and so it was hard. Like their lives were very, very hard. So I guess the other thing that I feel like I, you know, learned from them was both the importance of, of making sacrifices, but also, I guess, in a more personal way, you know, I then made certain decisions like I, I, I want to be more involved in my son's life than my dad was able to be involved in ours because yeah. of the commitments that he was making out into the world. You know, it's funny that you uh, bring that up, James, because one of the winners of the Nobel Peace Prize mm. a number of years ago was an African man mm. and he was killed. In, in uh, Nigeria, uh, rep, uh, in, that's uh, right. representing uh, against the oil, uh, I think, in southeastern Nigeria. But his son accepted the Nobel Prize, and he was a young boy yeah. when his father was killed. And an interviewer asked him the question about, does he resent that his father risked his life mm. in pursuit of his principles at the cost to his family. And the comment he made was, there are some people that want to save the world for their children. And there are some people who want to save their children from the world. Mm. So when I read about your dad, who was, you know, definitely a man not at all reluctant to demand the kinds of change that he thought were necessary for African-Americans to get their rightful place at the table, there was a part of me that made me wonder, well, yeah, it's the family business, but you also saw the sacrifices that they made, and therefore, you and your you you had a brother. Yes. You have a brother. Yep. You and your brother made, and I wonder how that shaped your thinking. I think exactly. I would align myself with the quote that you read. I mean, the sacrifices uh, were so profound and uh, so dramatic, and 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 kind of life altering for for my parents, and then ultimately for us. I mean, we. You know, we grew up in a lot of. There was a lot of turmoil mm. uh, in my early years. And were you frightened? I don't really remember ever being frightened. I mean, mm -hmm. I remember coming home and, you know, more than once, 
uh, and there would be there would be a car out in front of our house, and it would be like two guys in suits. Mm-hmm. And um, my mom and my dad had always told us, you know, there there will be FBI agents. They will be around. You you know, you may see them. They would describe the kind of cars that they drove, and and so you know, when you're a kid it's hard to to process that like it's hard to know you know like why is the fbi sitting in front of our house you know and because in school you're learning you know the police are good and law enforcement good you have to follow the rules and then you know but then you're being watched by the government and what exactly does that mean they always would talk to us about our you know the phones they said they were, the phones were probably being recorded and it's mm. not like we were ta- you know we were 7 and 8 we were we weren't there's nothing for us to say but but i this is and this is to my parents credit especially my mom who really was the person that kind of ran the house and was always around they did an incredible job of both of not not cocooning us but 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 explaining things to us in a way that were was age appropriate that didn't make us scared but also didn't make us think that we were weird or or, mm-hmm. or kind of freaks like i remember when i got older and i got to college and i really became aware of how crazy our childhood was yeah but i didn't you don't know it then. that way as a kid, right? And ki- you'll often read, right? Kids where they grow up in the foster care system. There's often kids will say they didn't even no. know at the time how abnormal this life was. And I guess you know, I would say I would say the same thing. And then to my dad's credit, you know, he really held true to his values and his beliefs. Like he he continued to live a life like he never tried to cash in he never he made the sacrifice and he kept doing it for his whole life i mean he died poor mm. he lived his whole life poor which as a kid you're not you don't love because you like kids yeah. want stuff. yeah you want stuff you need stuff <laughs> uh, <laughs> um but that's just how he that, that's how he did it and i honor that so did he clash at all with the other activists who were seemingly cashing in? I wouldn't say that. I would say that he he continued to do what he was going to do, which and was that's local what he was driven by. Yeah. Community organizing, neighborhood, going door to door, block to block. That's what he was driven by, and that's what he did. Um, and I don't think he was. He never shared with us that there was any that he was resentful in any way. Um, he held in high regard, you know, people that went into elected office, became in con- in Congress. He uh, talked talked to us very highly mm-hmm. about everybody that we knew that maybe had a higher public profile. Lots of people that were doing incredible work in different spheres. He he treasured them, and and we we just never heard a bad word. Um, about any of those folks from him. Yeah. So one of the things that um, I was thinking about when I when I was reading uh, the book, and I've done uh, some work in early childhood mm. education, um, particularly in low income communities. So, and you're the founder of the Maya Angelou Charter School. So when I was reading the book for our listeners, the book is organized by the origins. And then the consequences. And um, they include the marijuana that we're talking about, gun control, 
um, the role of black mayors and judges and and all of that and how this informed us. But, you know, to me and I assume to you, incarceration is certainly an enormous detrimental impact. But the but the other issue is the origin of these kids and these families mm. not having the opportunities to be well-educated, to have access to jobs, to have access to resources. So how do you think these problems can get dealt with on parallel tracks? And, and what do you see in the charter school that you started about what it takes to begin to make those changes? Well, the school— That's a lot of questions. Yeah, but. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, the school—we started the school, and David Dominici and I kind of started it together, and we worked with a whole community of people that kind of helped us get it off the ground. But the school was started in response to the fact that, you know, I'm working in juvenile court, and I'm representing young people— and I love being a public defender representing young people trying to keep them out of prison and jails because of how toxic those places are. But at the same time, one of my great frustrations that, is that even when I would win a case, my clients would end up going back to the same community, the same school, the same state that they had been in when they got arrested. And um, in many cases, they needed and they deserve better than that, particularly on the education front. They needed and they yeah. deserve better than that. And so when I would talk to my clients and I would ask them, well, what do you what would it take for you to not become my client again? Like, I love you, but I don't want to see you again. What's that? All, what's how's that going to happen? And they would always talk about having a good school because many of them had been kicked out of the traditional schools already and they had been shunted into alternative schools, which were should, worse. <laughs> right. Which were worse, which needed the best teachers, but didn't get them and needed the best materials and didn't get them. And they also wanted a chance to work. They wanted a chance to make money. I mean, one of the things that I, you know, always talk about whenever I'm talking to anybody who's working with young people in, you know, poor neighbors is, is people, kids want a chance to work. They want a chance to get money in their pockets. Like, I don't think that, I don't think that people who have never been poor have an appreciation for what it means to be poor. to not have any money as a teenager mm. right to to and so that liberty that comes with having a few dollars in your pocket that decision that just if you see that candy bar you can go buy it or that if you want to go to the movies on Friday night Friday night you can do it like that is it, to not have that is really 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 hard and so we started the school with that idea that we would have an excellent school and young people that we educated would also have a chance to work. So we actually ran in our early days, we ran a pizza shop and then we ran a catering restaurant that, that kids worked in. In the high school. In the school, yeah. So in my mind, if we want to – to me, the, the way I see solving these problems on a parallel track is actually pretty straightforward. Because over the last 50 years, what you've seen is you've seen African-American leaders and communities, right, asking for what I like to call all of the above approach to fighting crime and violence, right? They want more police and prosecutors, but they also want more money for housing, more money for job training programs, more money for education, more money for drug treatment, more money for mental health treatment, af quality after school programs, well-funded libraries, right? All the things that 
are not like nothing's unusual about that request. Like that's why, you know, people when they move to the suburbs, they're like, well, I moved to the suburbs. Why? Because I wanted these things. Right. So the list of what people want is very similar. Um, But for the last 50 years, what they've gotten from the government overwhelmingly has been one part of that all of the above strategy. It's been money for police and prosecutors. It's been and prisons. It's been building the largest prison system in the world. And so what I think we need to do now today is we need massively to redirect resources um, away from spending in the criminal system. And we need to direct those resources towards spending in all of these other places that I just mentioned. So I think what to do is actually pretty straightforward at this point. It's developing the political will, developing the coalitions, right, developing the advocacy strategies to push and to make those things happen. One of the things that surprises me, you know, here, here's a, um, a quote that, that guides me when I think about this, and it's Frederick Douglass's, which is, it is easier to raise a good child than to fix a broken man. Mm. And so my background is in finance mm. before I was a bookseller. And so I think of it, if you can't convince anybody based on just the the um, responsibility we have as a citizen to make sure that everyone in our country has access to the same quality resources, it's an economic decision, right? A dollar now, a dollar now in all the services that low-income families need will return eight, if not $80. I mean, there's actually been studies done in yes, Chicago and in Michigan that, that you couldn't get a better return for your money than making sure that you're taking a kid from zero to five in the first place and six, you know, kindergarten through 12th grade and making sure that they've got access. Yet why is it so difficult to get that, to get that simple message through? I, I just don't get it. Well, I think it's, I think it's two reasons. I think one is that it's very hard to get people to focus on children who are outside of their family, their neighborhood, mm-hmm. their community, right? So it's this notion that, well, that's some, you know, that's somebody else's problem. Different. Some or, of and kid, different. Diff- Somewhere right. different. And then here's where the difference kicks in. So I think that as in this country, we have not adequately grappled with the legacy of slavery. And in particular, and this is how it's connected directly to your question, is that if you think about the stereotypes and the kind of lies that you have to tell yourself as a society to justify slavery, (laughs) those lies include things like, well, those people are not normal. Right. And they don't. and, And in particular, they don't care about education. Right. So you're trying to justify yourself why it is that you would deny and make it illegal for people to learn to read. Right. These other who are clearly human beings. Well, they don't actually care about education. They don't want to read. That's why I'm not an immoral person if I deny them the ability to learn that. Well, that kind of idea, right, that's just one example. But that idea becomes embedded in our psyches. It becomes a stereotype, right? And then that crosses generations. Yeah. So that, that doesn't go away. Like we had slavery in this country for longer than we haven't. Right. Yeah. 
right? So just think about that. From 1619 to the Civil War Hmm. is longer than from the Civil War till now. And that's not even talking about Jim Crow. That's just slavery. Yeah. Right? You factor in Jim Crow, then basically for 80 percent of the country's history, we've we've had either slavery or Jim Crow. Right. You know, we we don't lose those beliefs as a as a as a people as a nation that just doesn't disappear, you know, overnight. And so I think that those are some of kind of those are the, like that's the underlying history which then makes people comfortable even if they don't say it, kind of thinking it. They might not even know. I mean, I certainly mm. consider myself as unracist as imaginable. I bet I am. I bet that there are ways that I don't even fathom how I am being racist in some subtle, but that's defining to somebody else in a way that I can't even grasp. And my parents haven't been in this country that long. That's the part that's tough. I mean, if it were just changing all the bad guys, it might seem simpler. I think the problem is that they're good people that are not grasping how this legacy is both imbuing how they see the world, they the white person, but certainly imbuing the way we think of resources being allocated because we say things like, well, you know, they don't really care about their families as much as we do. Mm -hmm. You know, it's what I always say, the way we think of immigrants or refugees, more to the point. My parents were refugees, you know, so that we think of those people over there in those Syrian refugee camps as somehow not like your mom or dad or me and my children because, well, they probably just don't because that's the way I protect myself from feeling absolutely leveled by the fact that I'm not doing anything to stop that. Right. No, that's exactly right. Um, and I think that if you look at, you know, the all the research on implicit bias, right, and if anybody has any questions about this, they can Google implicit association test and then they can take one of those The tests, Harvard one, the Harvard, right? Harvard, yeah, the Harvard I one. just took it. Yeah. I and, was fascinated by it. And just more to your point, I mean, black people share these biases. Yeah. We're African-Americans. Well, half of that is American. <laughs> and as Americans, we consume the same media. We're a part of this country. And if you look at um, black people who, t- uh, for example, you know, uh, will make associations between blacks and violence, right? That's It's a less entrenched uh, stereotype within black test takers, but it's still there, mm. just to a somewhat lesser degree. So, yeah, it's this is, you know, it's it's absolutely a problem that I think is rooted in slavery. And until we start talking about it and start confronting it and get to a point where people can be honest and, and not just be embarrassed about saying, yeah, well, you know, I, I, I took the test. I'm, I'm speaking about myself right now. I, James Foreman, took the test. And I, I remember I called this when it was first came out. I heard about him. This is like 10 years ago. And I knew a, co- a friend of mine from college had been one of the first researchers to help develop it. And I took it and it showed that I had, you know, I associated darker faces more quickly with an act of violence on when taking this test. And I called my friend, who's now a colleague here at Yale, and I was t- utterly freaked out. And she said, well, that's what we would have expected to find. Yeah. Um, so, you know, calm down. Uh, and but you but we've got to be willing to have some of these conversations before we're going to get anywhere. So let me ask sort of a multi-layered question in response to that. One is, when I 
read your book, one of the worries I had, and I don't know, I didn't see any of this, but I wondered if one of the criticisms of it could be that you're letting whites off the hook um, in the way you're telling this story. Have, have there been conversations or criticism of the book in that way? I've been asked that question. So nobody has has written a review that has said that. I didn't find that. one. I didn't the, find one. The reviews have typically said something like, you may be worried that this book in taking this approach is minimizing the role of racism, but it's not. And then they go on to explain yeah. why it's not. So I think if you take like one sentence or two sentences or, or even a paragraph and go no deeper, you might kind of have that fear, have that reaction. But everybody who's actually read the book um, sees that I'm very, very upfront about all of the ways in which uh, historical racism, institutionalized racism, structured the options that were available to the people that I'm writing about. So I'm writing about African-American decision makers and, and black communities And I'm showing the choices that they made, but I'm also showing all the ways in which those choices were constrained, right? Mm -hmm. All the ways in which they didn't have all the options available to them that they wanted, all the ways in which they go to the federal government and they say, you know, fight segregation, right? And, And create equal access to housing and bring us better schools. And they get rejected, right? For these reasons that we're talking about. And so I make it clear when you look at the book, then I'm writing against a background of a system of a, of a system and also though a literature right there are there's an incredible body now of literature, whether it's The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander or Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson or Between the World and Me by ta Coates or the hundred other books that aren't as famous as those three books, but which have started, have, have exposed all of the different ways in which racism and uh, individual actions and also institutionalized racism have helped to create the system that we now have. And what I'm doing is I'm saying, I want to add an additional layer that here there's something else on top you need to know all that and there's something else you should know on top of that here's what i have to say and so i think that and and when you read the book it's very clear yeah. that that's what i'm doing um and so i think that people have worried that that might um have been kind of an argument that i was making that somehow well racism you know that's not important but i say in the book and in conversations like this, you know, just the opposite. Yeah. And I think it's important for our listeners who may not have read the book yet, but they will after our conversation because they'll realize they need to, to understand that the book is very full-throated that way. It doesn't separate the problems. It incorporates the two dimensions. So one of the one of the stories that you tell towards the end of the book that I haven't been able to get out of my head, and I feel like her story represents so many threads Mm. of what you talk about in the book and what this conversation has been about. So her name was Tasha Willis, Mm -hmm. and she was a client of yours when you were a public defender. Share with us her story as it related to your being her public defender. Yeah. So um, Ms. Willis was, uh, and I should say I changed the names of all of my clients for, of course, to protect their privacy. So they're actual stories with different names attached. But Ms. Willis um, was facing 
uh, charges of uh, drug distribution. And she was charged with selling basically $10 worth of heroin. And she was herself an addict. And so like a lot of addicts, she helped to get money by selling small amounts of drugs. The scene you know, that I lay out in the book is where we're meeting in her house. So she's on release pending trial and... Where she's lucky already. Yes, that's right. Right. That's right. I mean, she's lucky given our system. It would be, to me, this should be normal and typical. But it's not. But no, you're right. That's right. That's a good point to make. And so we're talking about what to do. And she is telling me that she wants a plea offer. And the problem that I'm trying to tell her is that I've met with the prosecutor and I've asked for a plea offer. And the best plea offer I can get is five years, which to Ms. Willis and to me is an extraordinary amount of time. But the maximum that she was actually facing under I law found this shocking. was 60 years. 60 years for selling $10 of heroin. That's right. That was the statutory maximum. Now, there's no judge that I knew in the courthouse that would have given that, but a judge could have. They could have had a bad day. That's right. That's right. And it's because it was a second offense. So she had it's for 30 years for your first offense, which is, you know, insane. Right. And then, you know, 60 for the second offense. And so when I met with the prosecutor, the case that I was trying to make to her was I was telling her about Ms. Willis's background and about the fact that she had worked in the post office and she had become injured in the course of her job and she had become addicted over time to pain medications. And then she had, as you know, is a well-known story. I mean, she's hardly the only person this has happened to, uh, uh, started using harder drugs, turned to heroin, and at this point had become, was a heroin addict. And the prosecutor's position was well, she's already had a chance in a drug treatment program because she had previously been in a program and had not succeeded. And that answer to me was such a common one. Well, you know, they've already had a chance at a program. Now, every shred of research that everybody has done and, and life experiences of people tells you that when you're an addict, you typically, many people, most people need multiple Attempts, attempts before they actually overcome their addiction. And, you know, this is such a well-known point that I hadn't even entered the prosecutor's office with, like, literature on it because I thought, well, this is common sense. But her position was, look, she's had a chance and we need to hold these beds available for people that haven't had a chance before. And when I said to her, I really I, I lost my cool in the conversation, which isn't a good thing to do because that's not effective negotiation. <laughs> but, you know, I, I my voice raised and I started lecturing her and saying, well, how come, you know, we say that, well, drug treatment didn't work. And so we're never going to try that again. But with prison, we'll try it over and over and over again, no matter how much it's been shown to fail. And, you know, at that point, kind of the conversation ended. Um, And so I couldn't get the deal. I couldn't get a better deal. I couldn't get a better deal than the one that she was offering. Um, And eventually, you know, we go to court and really through kind of luck of the draw that day, I don't know what happened. A police officer didn't show up. The case ends up getting dismissed. 
And so in a way, again, it's a victory. But to me, the tragedy of the story is that when we when I left Ms. Willis in the courthouse that day, that day that she even came to court, I was a little wondering if she was even under the influence on that day. I couldn't quite tell, but she didn't seem quite right to me. And when the case was dismissed and I was saying goodbye to her, she said, you know, don't worry, Mr. Foreman, I'm going to go get into treatment. And I knew that she meant it then, but I also knew that there was a nine-month waiting list for drug treatment programs for poor people like her. If she had walked over to the program that day, she would have been given a date for nine months in the future. And there was no way she was coming back in nine months. So my frustration is with a system that would be so ready to impose, right? No judge has ever told me, well, we don't have space in the jail. We don't have space in the prison, so we can't lock them up. But the city says as a matter of course, well, we don't have space in the treatment program. You have to wait nine months. And that to me seems like such a radically, you know, really just a morally bankrupt. And as you said before, economically inefficient um, approach um, that it just it just devastates me to this day. Um, And I wanted to tell her story in the book because I feel like it's important. You know, a lot of books in the criminal justice system about the criminal justice system, they don't show like the everyday, the mundane. It's like, well, the person gets life without parole, you know, and that's true. And that happens. And but there's so many like lower level sort of almost daily kind of injustices like this one that go unnoticed, that go undiscussed and but that really gut people's lives. And so I felt like I felt like telling that story was important. And it did put you in the not only in her shoes and your shoes, but it put you in the system. Because the other thing that I think you do so well is there's this kind of other stereotype that's developed is the public defender mm. is sort of a beleaguered, indifferent slave to the process. And, you know, he's treating his clients as numbers. And you show just how wrong that that perception is. And, you know, as a counterweight to Miss Willis's story, I hope everyone does pick up the book because there's a story of a young man, Dante, who's a teenager who's been totally deserted by everything we're talking about, and yet how there was a way. There was a way that you found and the court found and then the system found to give him another chance. So everyone, we'll we'll leave it as a mystery that they have to read the book to learn about. Uh, Let me ask you this last question, which I like to ask all our authors, is what's the book that changed your life, James? Hmm. I think the book that changed my life was a book by Deborah Meyer called The Power of Their Ideas. And Deborah Meyer was a a teacher, an educator, the founder of a school in New York City called Central Park East School. And she wrote this book about her experience founding this alternative school. It was a school where students were encouraged to ask questions. And uh, kind of the rote memorization approach to education was... Uh, she really avoided and and students were encouraged to take ownership of their learning and and to try to write produce final projects instead of 
you know, answering, you know, fill in the bubble tests. And I read the book. The reason why I changed my life is that I read the book when I was a public defender operating in juvenile court, frustrated with the lack of educational options for my clients. And to read a book about somebody who started a school and to go inside that story and to to imagine, you know, you could create in a space. She was working in East Harlem, right, very poor part of New York City. You could try to create something beautiful and meaningful that young people led mm. in really difficult circumstances. And so seeing her story made me think maybe we could do it. Yeah. Well, James— I am just so grateful you've written the book, and I know, I mean, it's already out in paperback. It's been out for a little bit over a year that it is creating the template for the conversation that we need to be having. To me, this is one of the most important things we need to think about in our country if we're going to continue to be a strong free country. So, James Foreman, thank you very much for joining us on Just the Right Book. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.